Hi listeners, Delaney here, co-producer of The Sausage of Science. Today we present part one of a two-part episode with Dr. Josh Snodgrass. Stay tuned next week for part two. from the sound and you of course don't have the visual i do he was literally saying that through gritted teeth gritted teeth grit. i am i'm amused at the moment so i'm reading this book the truth about animals which is a delightful book of the, like the weird and absurd facts about animals that a lot of people don't know the truth and also, is that animals are evil i right. mean no no it's 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 coming to to be that the people who like historically study these animals were evil and really judgmental of the animals. <laughs> like Aristotle had like, did we talk about this last time? Maybe not. No. How so, judgy Aristotle was? No. Aristotle was obsessed with eels because he couldn't find their gonads and he just couldn't make sense of it. No matter how many he dissected, he could not find eel gonads. And so he just gave up and said eels spontaneously generate and their juveniles are like the worms that come out of mud after it rains. <laughs> and then last night I learned that the Lion King has lied to us all along. Lions are far more likely to steal kills from hyenas than the other way around. That makes sense to me. And hyenas are also more intelligent than lions. That also uh, is something I think I already had a sense of. I'm going to start writing my letter to Disney this evening. They need to remake it and make it more uh, accurate to nature. <laughs> your, your letter will go on a tall pile. It will. It will. Anyway, this all comes about, and I remember this all so well, because Asher Rossing and I have this like funny thing where we just randomly email one another random animal facts. And so he's been getting like daily email updates from everything I learned from this book right now. Chris is like, I have no response to this. I this has nothing I've, to I've, do with I've, today's I've interview. Thinking and of something witty, and I'm, <laughs> I'm drawing a. I mean, I could talk to you about turtle penises. I think I did a blog on that once upon a time, but oh, seems yeah. like we would go way off the rails if I started doing that. I highly recommend the book. It also includes like old timey illustrations by you know the likes of Aristotle and Pliny the Elder, yeah. <laughs> and well, they're I mean, hilarious. I'm quite excited about today's interview uh, because we have Dr. Josh Snodgrass on the show today. So he is a professor in the Department of Anthropology and co-director of the Center for Global Health at the University of Oregon. Uh, his research and teaching focus on human biology and global health, and his work sits at the intersection of the natural and social sciences, and its interdisciplinary focus reflects his deep commitment to integration across the anthropological subfields and between anthropology and other disciplines such as human and comparative physiology, medicine, epidemiology, psychology, nutritional sciences, molecular biology, and ecology and evolutionary biology. And I am done talking for the day because he is a very, you know, well-respected, renowned scientist in our field. And 
that didn't even scratch the surface. Not even scratch the surface. Are we good with bringing Josh on? Yeah, let's bring him on. Welcome to the Sausage of Science. We are super excited to have you on for so, so, so many reasons that we even blocked off like double time expecting this conversation to, to go a while. Uh, but we like to start all of our podcasts the same way, and that's to learn how you got into anthropology, what your journey was of how you got interested in it, and then actually decided to pursue it as a career. Cool. Well, thank you again for having me. And, and I have to say, I love the podcast, and I love this question, and I love hearing about you know people's different journeys, because they are really different. Um, I guess for me, you know, first and foremost, I wasn't a good student growing up at all. I, you know, actually struggled as a, as a kid with academics and kind of found my home, my safe space with sports. And so I think at some point when I realized that I wasn't going to be a professional basketball player or, you know, soccer player or something like that, I, you know, I started, you know, getting more into academics and went to community college and got increasingly excited with a lot of really good classes. And then I transferred to UC Santa Cruz and, you know, I kind of had these interests in, I guess, on one hand, international stuff. Um, and then on the other kind of ecology, organismal biology, evolution, and none of these were really particularly well formed, but every time I would go into a class and do a different major, I, you know, just, it was like, oh, this is interesting, but it's not really exactly what I want to do. And then I took a couple of anthropology classes, um, uh, intro to human evolution class and a human variation class. Those two classes just totally blew my mind. And, you know, and, and this is, I think, common for a lot of us, right? You take one of these classes and it's like, oh my God, stuff comes together in a, in a way that it hadn't in other places. And so, you know, for me, I just, you know, at that moment, literally, you know, I was like, oh my God, I got, I got to do this. I've got to like read everything I can and take as many classes as I can. And so, you know, for, for me, I was really hooked on anthropology really pretty quickly. And, and, you know, I had a lot of, thankfully, I had a whole lot of opportunities as an undergrad at UC Santa Cruz to do research, to get involved in research. I mean, I had no idea that that was even an option for undergrads or even what that, you know, meant. And I got plugged into a couple of research projects and then also some applied work working as a forensic anthropologist closely with a mentor. And so I got all this great experience and then had the opportunity to be a TA in a class, in a primate behavior class as an undergrad. I was like, oh my God, I love this. The research, the outreach piece, you know, the applied dimension and also the teaching. And so it, it sent me down that path, yeah, to, to wanting to do this, you know, at, in grad school, but then also professionally. Who can we credit? Uh, would you see this more as a sort of anthropology would you in? Was there a charismatic professor? I mean, who, who we like to give credit where credit's due. Yeah, definitely. I'm happy to give credit here. It really was a couple people. Um, so I took a class with um, an intro class with Adrian Zillman at UC Santa Cruz, and that was one that just totally blew my mind. And then the human variation class was Allison Galloway, and she became, you know, a close mentor and a close friend. And in fact, I was asking her for advice like two weeks ago, right? <laughs> and so, you know, it's a lifelong relationship. So I'm happy to give them both credit. I, I actually just said that to one of the grad students in my department who, who was thanking me. She's she's still involved and everything. I'm like, oh, this is a lifelong thing. So, so you know, we're going to hold on to each other. If you stay in this discipline, we're going to hold on to each other for the rest of our yep. career. So it's nice to hear that from others as well. Yep. It's building that professional family up <laughs> as much Seriously. as possible. Um, and the other thing that I, I find really interesting about your career is, you know, the research trajectory. 
and you know anyone who knows my work and knows your work that your work with the Yakuti especially have been very informative for me uh, in, in designing my work in Finland. Uh, and so you kind of, you know, you did that work with Bill Leonard as part of your graduate work and beyond. Uh, and then you've kind of shifted your focus more towards aging and global health. As, um, and this has been exemplified with your work among the Shuar and then the aging project. And so maybe you could tell us about that because I think a lot of people and, and perhaps even, you know, the younger folks in the field that like you stick with your one topic and that's what your career is defined by, but that's just not true. And oh, so I, I think you have a great example of that. No, I totally agree. And, and um, yeah, so for me, I mean, I was really interested in skeletal biology. And in fact, I, I realized pretty quickly from some applied work that I didn't want to do forensics. So I really got interested in applying skeletal biology to questions in paleoanthropology. And so I was actually at University of Florida for my master's and was planning on doing a PhD there and working with um, Susan Antone at that time. She was my advisor and um, working on these projects around Neanderthals and also thinking about diet and human evolution. And then Bill Leonard was there as well. And he was on my um, master's committee. And I just remember I ended up taking a ton of, of classes with Bill. Poor Bill. I think he's always teaching so many classes. He's so giving, right? And and so he was the one who taught like the entire graduate curriculum there. I'm sort of exaggerating, but not by much. And so for me, it was fantastic, right? Just learning about what he does and this energetics perspective and hearing all of, all about the Siberia work. And, and I think it dawned on me that all the questions I had in paleoanthro relied on human biology and contemporary human biological variation. And then as I started digging into that literature, I was like, wait a second, like we don't know that much that we're then using to apply to the fossil record. And as much as I'm so interested in the fossil record, I was and I still am, you know, we just, we have to understand human biological variation and the reasons for it, the actual variation around the world and space and time. And so it just got me on this trajectory. And then, you know, the University of Florida, I went through some, some let's just call them growing issues and a number of people left, including Bill, and he went up to Northwestern and I had the, the possibility of going up there to, to work with him at Northwestern. And, and then that opened the door for work in um, Siberia. And I mean, as soon as I heard his story, Stories, you know, and I know both of you have heard those stories, right? You just like, oh, this is amazing from a scientific standpoint, and this is really amazing from like a personal opportunity perspective. So, you know, we went and did that work. And then I think for me, I realized pretty quickly there that I had set out to do this project about human adaptation, right? Understanding human biology and adaptation to the cold. But I really wasn't situating things well in terms of the contemporary health issues, right? And so, you know, I I think that we've done a lot of really good work, I like to think, you know, in terms of the human biology. But the only piece that the only way, reason that we were able to do this was by plugging into the health piece. We realized that, you know, that people wanted to know about their health. They had their own concerns at an individual and a community level. I was also realizing that, you know, it's pretty hard to study human adaptation without contextualizing that with, what, with what's going on, right? Because at the time, we'd just seen the collapse of the Soviet Union, massive impacts on health, and then we're seeing massive, you know, economic development in the region with massive changes in terms of, of health, especially in mental illness and chronic disease. So I kind of grew the project to be something that was about human adaptation, but then also something that was about health change, right? And so I got, I think I, at that point, I just got increasingly interested in the health piece. And, you know, and so that then the Siberia project grew 
in those dimensions. And then the way that it kind of, you know, grew towards the other two projects is, um, you know, one of them was just kind of as a reflection of the challenging sort of geopolitical situation in Russia. We, we've had so many issues there. Uh, working in Russia. I mean, I think, you know, at one level, it was really easy, right? At the community and individual and collaborating scientist level, simple, right? People wanted us there. It was easy to work on the ground. It was easy to work in these communities. But in terms of getting visas and dealing with, uh, you know, all the logistics of working in Russia, it was really hard. And I had times where, you know, we had a field season canceled, right? You know, that cost tens of thousands of dollars to pull the plug on stuff that I had no control over. So I was increasingly thinking like, this is a really bad bet, right? I, I got some good data from my dissertation, but, you know, am I gonna be able to do this for a career? And so it was nice then I had a couple of opportunities. One was, you know, when I first got here to, to Oregon, um, I got to know Larry Sugiyama, who's an uh, kind of evolutionary psychologist, human behavioral ecologist, cultural anthropologist. And he had, he was, he'd been doing work in, in Ecuador and other parts of South America for a number of years. And he'd started working with this group called the Schwar, which I know you both know, and, and, and listeners of this podcast know about that as well, know about the group as well. And so, you know, I started having these conversations with Larry and I started thinking, okay, well, one, we could do similar kinds of things as in Siberia, but really expand the health research. And, and then two, it seems possible, right? And, you know, it's probably a good thing to invest in, given that I don't know about what's going to happen with Siberia. And then I think really importantly was the sort of intellectual piece of this, that it really expanded the sort of, you know, human biology model. And I mean, there's a, a lot of merits, a lot of wonderful things about the biology model, but it doesn't really incorporate like the behavioral pieces in terms of like behavioral ecology. And, and so Larry and I started this project in 2005, and then the project has really been driven by students, by graduate students in particular. And in fact, many of those students are ones that you've had as guests on this podcast as well, right? And, and you can see that influence of the sort of traditional human biology with behavioral ecology and, you know, evolutionary psychology. Tara Sipon Robbins, who you had a few weeks ago, I think, you know, just wonderful example of how a thesis, you know, can grow from, you know, these ideas that are pulling from different areas. And now she's got this wonderful, you know, PNAS paper that talks about disgust and really is innovative, I think, in terms of bringing together this emotional piece with the underlying physiology and the evolutionary piece. So that was really exciting. And that's continued to pay dividends for, for many years. And then the, the aging project was in, in part because I couldn't say no to the opportunity to work with WHO. That was one where I was in my postdoc and I was working with, I guess, co-advised by Tom McDade and the late uh, John Cassiopo at the University of Chicago. And, you know, I think Tom originally got, you know, approached for doing this work on this aging project with WHO. And Tom's a lot smarter than me and said no and handed it off to me. <laughs> and I was like, ooh, World Health Organization. Ooh, exciting, right? And opportunity to do, you know, biomarkers and, you know, it was, it, it, I, I love it. It's been wonderful, but it was a really bad early career investment. I, you know, I was thinking about it as I went up for tenure. I had put like thousands of hours into the SAGE project, and I literally didn't have one conference presentation or publication, you know, out of that. But it, you know, those investments were wonderful for a lot of reasons. But then finally, post-tenure, all of a sudden there was this, this lot of papers. And, and we're still working on that now, right? I still have both grad students and undergrads working on projects related to SAGE. So some of that was just, yeah, that opportunity, that excitement about doing things. And then 
but also kind of this recognition that it gave me the opportunity to think through the social and environmental determinants of health and biology and aging. So a lot of the folks that we have on, as you mentioned, are, are some of the students that have come through your lab. They're now uh, doc, uh, doctors as well. They're now um, off at, at, at their own jobs. And we, we do try to elicit a lot of information on here to help grad students and early career folks. But uh, one of the coolest experiences I had was when the AAAS Leshner Fellowship opportunity came my way and I realized there are a lot of mid-career questions that I have no, no direction on. So, so you're, you're a perfect person to ask, right? You've got all of these balls in the air. Um, <laughs> From the outside, we we see this. This is sort of um, uh, I'm going to forget. Sir Michael Marmot. Sir Michael Marmot, thank you. <laughs> said presciently that you know these organizations we see from the outside that look so integrated and well run from the inside often are you know feel like a total hot mess, right? So your lab from the outside looks amazingly functional and productive. And it sounds like what you're saying is you've you've suffered your own growing pains in, in the process of that. So I would really love to hear how you run a lab. Like what's the day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week or month-to-month -month thing to sort of keep all this stuff going? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm, I'm glad to hear that it looks like it's well run and that there are all these balls in the air. So what you don't see is the chaos. You don't see the shattered balls, you know, glass balls on the, the ground behind me. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would say it's just, it is, it is really, really, really hard to do all these things. And, and I feel like I've had my challenges and my fair share of maybe more than that, you know, fair share of, of, of failures. I think, you know, for me, it is, I think, first and foremost about kind of the, the collaborators, the students, the people, and, and really investing in people, right? So, I mean, there is, there's me, right? And it's easy to talk about my research the little air quotes, right? But the reality is like everything I've done has been with other people. And, and so that investment in people is really important. And, and so, you know, I think mentoring people well, training people well, empowering people. You know, I think one of the things that we did with the Schwar project was, you know, we, we set it up such that, you know, Larry and I had our ideas about the structure of the project and some of the main goals, but then it was really all about the students in terms of how they plugged in to that and, and then how we let them help us move things forward, right? So actually the very early work in the lab was um, some of it was me, but actually a lot of it was Aaron Blackwell when he was a grad student here. And so he'd had training on a lot of the, the methods prior to me arriving here at University of Oregon, but it was working really closely with him to get things set up. And you know, so it was really investing in, in the, student, the graduate students, but then also increasingly investing in undergraduate students as well. And I think you know, there's often this perspective of undergrads is, oh, well, you know, you kind of add them at the end and maybe it's like a service kind of thing where you create, help them create a project. And, and I guess for me, um, the, the, the realization that you can actually, as long as you invest in students and, and you invest in early, you know, and a lot over time, you can actually have incredibly productive undergraduate students, you know, who are involved, you know, very, very early and, you know, and you can involve them even in freshman or sophomore year and get them to invest. So I've had, I've been so lucky to have 
amazing you know, undergrads. You had Ruby Freed a little while ago talking about her work. She was an undergrad of mine. Heather Shattuck-Heidorn, who is now in her own faculty position, was big in terms of setting up the lab. So, you know, I think, yeah, one hand, just really invest in people. And then the other is finding creative ways, right, to, to finance this kind of stuff. So it's sort of weird to talk about stuff now because my lab is actually shut down. I kind of had, had this, like, I don't know, 13 or 14 years straight of collecting data and now have, like, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of samples probably in the lab. And so I kind of already had planned to have a time where we went on a little hiatus and then the pandemic hit. So it's been much easier to, to do that. But um, I had, I think, seven or eight years with a professional lab manager, uh, Gita Ike, who is a PhD molecular biologist, but it was really challenging to fund her for that long, but totally worth it in terms of, you know, she's a wonderful person, so smart, such a great contributor because I'm not a PhD molecular biologist, right? And so, you know, our skills work really well together, but it was, you know, a combination of NSF money, NIH money through the SAGE project, as well as, you know, sort of the pay for services part of the lab that we set up. So it was just like, I mean, I, I hate it when administration uses that sort of be creative because it usually means there's no funding for something and you're gonna have to do more work. And, but I think it really, the only way the lab worked, right? And the only way my research works is by people and collaborative networks. And then also by the sort of creative approaches to how you do this stuff. So I love all of that. And I think it's also really important to, to demonstrate like the time and effort that goes into it behind the scenes that people don't ever actually see, especially, you know, soft money funding of positions to keep a lab up and running. That is always a precarious position to be in as a lab manager, as well as the person who's actually being funded by the soft money. And so that's a really great bit of advice for, you know, the, the little bit more later middle career folks, even early career. But another thing I'd like to touch on, and I think it it hits with the Schwar project in particular is, you know, advice for junior folks about getting plugged into these well-established field sites and networks. Um, I think of myself compared to like the Schwar folks, you know, starting up a field site in Finland, like probably much like your aging project, there's like a giant lag time before you actually see things that upper admin and granting agencies consider valuable output. But like we see papers from the Schwar folks coming out like that and everybody gets on the paper. And so it's a really great way to be productive. And so what advice might you have for younger folks to like how to best one find those opportunities yeah. and to, you know, be successful at possibly being part of them? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And um, I mean, I think so much is about building that collaborative network. I guess the way that I think about it is, you know, first and foremost, that like all, basically all the questions that we're interested in at this kind of interface of the social, behavioral, and natural sciences require bunches of people, right? I mean, like the days of doing things on our own are, are, are gone, right? I mean, we can go out and start our own project, but it's going to require a bunch of other people, whether they're coming from the U.S. or in some international place, whatever, right? it's gonna require people with different skill sets. So, you know, I think, you know, that it's all about assembling that team of people. And then also figuring out what your role is, right? And so, you know, are you gonna be somebody who does something extremely well and then get asked to participate in things because you have this particular skill set? Or are you somebody who kind of has this overarching perspective and likes to assemble the team and put together the pieces? Right. So I think for me, you know, I'm, I started out early in my career as that person who plugged into things. And then I think I've, I've, I've 
you know, been most interested in, 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 and I think it's been most useful to actually be that person who puts things together and really brings people in. Um, as, as I've gone into sort of my middle and late, I guess I don't want to think about myself in my late career, but maybe I am. Um, but I think, you know, for, for me, it's just all about figuring out who I can collaborate with and maintaining those relationships, really investing in those. And so I think oftentimes people, you know, have this, this tunnel vision, right, about how they get involved with stuff. And it's kind of like, I'm going to plug into this particular project. But I think the reality is that there's often a lot of relationships that you can develop with people that may not have something you see immediately in terms of, a, you know, an outcome, but can be something later on where it's like, oh, wow, I could actually collaborate with that person. Or that's the missing piece in this particular project. I need to bring that person in. And so I think just really investing in that and, you know, going to meetings, whether that's like in person or virtual meeting people. And even though that you don't think like, yeah, exactly, even though it doesn't feel like you're actually going to, you know, do something immediately, I think establishing that network so that five years down the road or 10 years down the road, you know, you can start to work with that person. Um, so that that investment, that recognition of, of the importance. You know, the other piece with the, the Schwar project that you, you mentioned in terms of people being on papers and things like that is the way we set it up is that kind of there's a, a, a you know, a, a, I don't want to say hierarchy, but it's really not. A, it's, it's a pretty flat hierarchy. But it's, you know, the way we've set this up organizationally is that, you know, we've got, you know, me and Larry and, and now um, some of the people who have, have you know, risen to leadership roles in the, in the Schwar project. So Felicia Manimenos, Melissa Lieber, and Sam Erlocker, you know, we're, we're making decisions about things. But then we also have former grad students who are part of this and current grad students and undergrads. And so there's a lot of work of like, you know, undergrads being advised by graduate students and also helping with things, right? So like, for example, when we were doing, I think it was a data collection for <clears throat> Aaron Blackwell's dissertation, we had like Tara Sipon down there and she was doing her initial training. And so partly because we're poor, right? And we didn't have a whole lot of money starting that project. And it's always operated with like, you know, chewing gum and duct tape and stuff like that to hold the project together. We're reliant on people, you know, undergrads, grad students, Ruby Freed was part of that as an undergrad. And, you know, we, we have those people learn, right? Get mentored by other people, but then also participate in the data collection. So they become then people who are on papers, right? In part, that's kind of their payment or their reward for participating in this. But then it's also helpful to the graduate student who's, you know, getting those people who are invested in their project. It's helpful for everybody all around. So it, it was a very intentional design in terms of having people who do different things and being plugged in in different ways. I love hearing that um, it, it sort of mirrors some of the experiences Kara and I have had and talked about with with other folks. You mentioned like the the mid to late career thing. I know I say mid career and I just got promoted to full professor too. So now I'm like, holy shit, am I late? I still feel I still feel early to mid because Next stop I'm emeritus. Uh huh. I'm still figuring out some of these things, and at one point setting up a new field site when I first got my job here in Costa Rica was so hard. It was, uh, you know, every every year I couldn't get back in the field, the ball would roll further back down, right? So I ended up switching over conveniently enough to Samoa where I realized, I think I'd avoided some of these field sites that seemed like they had been sort of over 
there's this there's this perspective i guess what i'm saying from the outside they look like they're overstudied there are there are a handful of these field sites right um where human biologists have been working for for many many years and they seem like they are overstudied but the reality is we're all underfunded there are still health inequities that we don't understand physiology we don't understand and once I started clicking into a, a network and realizing it's great to have Nikki Holly and um, uh, Steve McGarvey and their crew literally up the hill for me in Samoa for when I plug in my bioimpedance analyzer and fry that thousand dollar piece of equipment <laughs> that I can go up there and borrow something because I don't have the money for it. Right. So like, that's just a small example of like the sort of messiness, but then that network that we that we all plug into and so i think kara and i are doing the podcast for the same reasons that, that you're describing